0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Irish band, Whipping Boy, because I recently spoke to the guitarist, Paul Page to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview. Um, and I do believe, as as you'll find out as the interview goes on, that they do have um, some reissues coming out very soon. And, um, yes, with Pete Perfetus. It's very exciting. Anyway, look, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Paul... Tell us about your early formative years. It's over to you.
1: For me, it was Adam and the Ants. Um, I remember seeing Adam and the Ants on top of the Pops and just been absolutely entranced by this. This was what I thought pop music was all about. Like he had, you know, he dressed like a pirate or a highwayman and so much energy. It was kind of a, a kind of a Cleaned up version of punk in a way, but I just thought that was so exciting for someone who was like eleven or twelve. It just looked like the most thrilling thing. And then I kind of started getting getting into the police early. The police again they were a band that you know I was really excited about at that age, and um, obviously did Sting went on and <laughs> recorded some albums that I probably can't claim to be a fan of, but the early police mu- music was really good and. Yeah, but Adam and the Ants, I'd say, was the first kind of, the first time I, I saw pop music as something that was genuinely exciting, not just music you heard on the radio. It's, it, it looked like, you know, it was, was something about it that triggered something in me that, I suppose, yes. started off a lifelong love of music and got me into playing eventually. And
0: did you, and were your parents at all kind of musical, or did they have any kind of musical interest or a good record collection?
1: um no but i did have i spent a lot of time growing up in my grandparents house and my uncles were very musical so they were always playing um guitars tin whistles banjos very traditional music um kind of music like the by the dubliners and you know irish traditional bands and they did introduced me to the guitar i didn't actually learn to play it at that stage but i was i I kind of i think they definitely stored something an interest in it because i watched them fascination as they watched their hands moving across the fretboard and just it was just it was just something that you know to be able to to pull melodies and music from this piece of wood just something that was definitely piqued my curiosity at a really young age so that would have been before i was even you know I was under 10 at that stage so was no, your... no real music in the family other than that um you know I've no um pop star parents no. or anything like you that didn't have an older
0: brother <laughs> or sister who introduced you to some cool music or anything like that no i,
1: I tell you i i had a younger sister how i started to listen to um independent music i had there was a, a a guy i knew across the road from me and I started calling over to him and he started feeding me these records. Um, he had a really impressive vinyl collection, top of the range stereo, and I had this beaten up little uh, uh, mono player at home. But he started giving me, I'd go over every week and then I'd start to increase the frequency. I'd go over maybe two or three times a week and he just kept feeding me music the Smiths, uh, Joy Division, New Order, um, Echo and the Bunnymen. He got me into all this music and I remember he gave me the Velvet Underground's first album, and I listened to it when I got go home, and I hated it. <laughs> but there was something, there was something about it, and um, there was something about it that uh, some months later I asked him for a lend of it again, and this time I got it, and I absolutely loved the Velvet Underground. They were probably one of our biggest influences early on, so. Um, Funny how music can have that effect. It, it, it planted a little seed when I heard the album. I, I didn't like it. It repelled me in some ways because it just sounded so different to the music I'd listened to. But I yes. went back and and borrowed it again. And you know, it's quite interesting because
0: really... my brother I had an older brother who was seven years older, and he had one of those kind of this is in the seventies one of those kind of classic rock books, you know, that you'd get because obviously we didn't have the internet, and you'd look through it and sort of. And we also had a record library, you know, in this sort of town, city, well, which is quite a long way away, because I came from the countryside, you know, village. So there wasn't a mm. huge amount of culture, but there was a lot of nice, you know, scenery and nature and stuff like that. And I do remember sort of one of those albums, because they always had, you know, like the top albums would have been like the two Van Morrison ones, you know, Moondance and Astral Weeks, and there was Journey, yeah. and then there was, you know, the Beach Boys and the the Beatles. And then, it, you know, somewhere in there was the Velvet uh underground I always get the film and, and, and the band mixed up and I, I do did, I did sort of I think I actually went and bought it because it was only like two ninety nine, and I thought this is a classic and being very like surprised because you've read a bit of the review and it doesn't really give you an, an you know an idea of what it's like and the first track is Sunday Morning isn't it and you're thinking
1: such a beautiful track yeah yes it's, it's not like... a, it, <laughs> yeah, it certainly isn't a sign of to what's to come because there's some really dark songs you know Venus and Fours and even European song is such a such an extreme track music and uh, and
0: then you listen to heroin and it was like yeah I can see what you mean you know it's like you know but then you spent 2.99 you're thinking well I'm definitely going to have to listen to this again and and slowly sort of got got hold of it I think side one was a lot easier than side two but yeah it was kind of it was a bit of a classic really wasn't it so when did you kind of think right I'm going to make that massive investment and get a guitar
1: so I've Vividly remember um, Miles, the bass player, and me are cousins and we, we we started going to gigs in Dublin together. And um, you know, we went to a couple of big ones, U2 in Crow Park, which was like one of our fourth ones, but we went to see Echo and the Bunny Men in um, a place called the St. Francis Xavier Hall. And we both came away from that absolutely blown away. And we walked away saying, one day we're gonna play in that venue. We just that was it, that was the moment. I think I think it was nearly ten year ten years later we supported Nick Cave in that to, in that um, venue just before we went on stage we it was that little look and we said if you remember that night my God um, That's like that, a that was film yeah it, it actually was it was it was one of those moments where you know you know people sometimes say you couldn't have known then and we didn't know obviously we but we just were so taken by the whole mystique of ek the bunny meant the power of the music it was just it was incredible like it, it you know if just four guys on stage could create such such a powerful um and affecting sound and it just we walked away from there thinking that's all we want to do so that was the moment and we went out we saved up and bought guitars the two of them started playing together and just to develop and everything yes. we did we thought it sounded brilliant but it was probably a horrible mess at the in the early stages
0: and do you because you know i thought uh, you know coming from norwich it doesn't have why well, you know outside norwich i mean we don't have a great musical world do we we you know we had the farmers boys the higgs and serious drinking and a few other bands you would never even heard of you know you're lucky to have heard those ones so it wasn't amazing <laughs> but you had some major players didn't you in your neck of the woods? and you also had people like you know, obviously. Lizzie. So, did that, I mean, I can't imagine what that would be like. It'd be like in Athens, Georgia with REM and, and the B 52s, and is it Pylon as well? You know, they have, you know, there's been books about, you know, written about this place and the, these amazing bands, and you're thinking, yeah, REM, the biggest one of the biggest bands in the world. And then you've got, you know, U2, you and again, what's it like to grow up in a place like that?
1: So, well, I suppose when I, we started playing music and listening to music, U2 hadn't broken big. You know, but there was a really good local music scene and lots of Irish bands that didn't make it that, you know, I would say are every bit as good as bands like U2, The Cranberries. Like in in Dublin in the 80s, and when we started going to gigs, there was a, a lot of venues. It was, you know, the way you spent your weekends was going to see local bands, which is very different to what it's been like in Dublin for the last 10, or 20 years and probably everywhere. Um, but that was your that was your weekend, and it was always a different band, and always a really good band to see. So, I'm, I'm thinking of bands you may not have heard of bands like Stars of Heaven, A House, and um, The Real Wild West, The Slowest Clock, A Lot Blue in Heaven. Lots of really good Irish bands that um, never made it. Um, were, were the
0: were the Wood Woodbees? Were they from Dublin? Or yeah, this?
1: they were. They were from. Um, some of them are from Dublin, I think. they were a really good band. John Peel, a big John Peel favourite as well. And I think, and
0: then Morrissey loved them. That's right, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, now, and when U2 did break, there was that sense that, you know, and I know U2 probably gets slated now and you know the later music certainly wouldn't appeal to me, but there was a real sense of pride as you, the young, younger people in Ireland were really proud to see a band like U2 Make it on the bigger stage. They were they were on the rise. They were on the up, and it was it was inspirational for even for us. Even if you weren't a fan of the band, you couldn't help but say, "Well, look, there's a band from where we came from, from the streets we grew up on." Yes. And literally, you know, they're from very close to the centre of the city. You know, um ordinary guys. And it was just it was an inspiration to see them take off the way they did. Yes, it must so, have Yeah, been. It, it, it was a good, it, you know, was a really good place in terms of music in the 80s. It was a pretty horrible place in other respects. There was <laughs> a lot of unemployment, major uh, heroin problem in, in the early 80s in Dublin. So music was an escape for a lot of us, whether it's go, whether it was going to see bands or playing music. And, yes. You know. Um, well,
0: it was, as you mentioned, the post-punk period. And I suppose that's, you know, for me, that was... You know, we had the punk, a few, few years of punk, and then, you know, the bands start appearing that you think, oh, that's dreadful, and everyone has to look like Sid Vicious in a way, don't they? So, you know, a lot of people think actually this is time to move on. Then you had that post punk world of the bands like, you know, Gang of Four and Magazine and Peel and the Nightingales and Marky Smith and The Fall. And then, you know, like, there was that period of, I suppose, the early indie pop sound. And I suppose, you know, bands like, I suppose it was Big Country, Simple Minds and You 2 and Echo yeah. and the Bunny Men, And that scene from Liverpool, from Eric's as well, helped. But I do sort of think it was kind of 83 when the Smiths appeared. And things kind of like, I thought that was such a kind of moment because it almost, for five years, they were just such a sort of band of the moment and they were the... You know, they were just there 24-7, really, weren't they, releasing albums. And also from, from doing the, the these kind of interviews, you know, there, w- there was a huge amount of unemployment. So a lot of people would just go, well, I'm just going to be unemployed. And then the Job Seekers Alliance and Enterprise allowance schemes that gave people, you know, almost an, a year of claiming, you know, Money, which was also to live on and housing benefit and the council tax paid so for a lot of people you know it was drinking smoking and playing in a band and then you know getting that first you know little gig and then getting a sort of single and then John Peel played it and then the John Peel session Mm. you know I know it all looks really like a rose-tinted sunglasses but you know every city and town had an alternative indie night didn't they which was probably at the start of the week so you did three bands and as you know from lockdown everyone's been going through their archives and sticking it on Facebook and Instagram and you look at it like with the 299, 399 or whatever you know these like three amazing bands you thought oh god yeah I probably didn't even want to bother to go out that night and I could have seen some of the great bands of our time so it was it was a very fertile time and as I sort of realized from doing this there were hundreds literally hundreds yeah. of bands we're not even talking about the the Trevor Horn production sound of Top of the Pops and Tina Turner and Dire Straits which was another scene in, in itself so it was quite extraordinary so you must have felt with you know being in in Dublin with seeing what was happening kind of the ability or the opportunity to sort of progress to at least the next base.
1: Yeah I suppose at the start when I say you two were an inspiration it was, it was just inspirational to see them move on we had no designs on pop stardom or or that that level at the the beginning it was just a joy for us to be able to make music together and play music and it was you know playing small venues that held 150 people if you know that was a good night if you saw people coming through the door i remember standing at the top of the stairs at this bar called the underground and we'd literally be trying to anticipate who coming along the road may be coming (laughs) maybe going to go down to the gig so uh I, i remember those times really fondly and i think when you think back on like we went on to have some level of success in Ireland, but i i look back on those times when we were playing our first gigs and when we were developing as a band as the happiest period in the band and we did everything ourselves you know we did flyers for the gigs ourselves it was it was all just full on all about the music and um, there was lots of great things that happened after that but that time and I don't think it's just rose tinted glasses. I just think that's the time when a band are at their most, I suppose, the most energetic. That energy to to do something, to make make you know, make yourself heard, is at its best. At that yeah. period at that well, stage. Well, being
0: you know? able to actually do anything creative and have a have something to show for it, I think, it's kind of amazing. I've never played an instrument, so I've never had that kind of. Did I just do that, you know, moment, which is obviously something that you think, I wish I hadn't played so much football when I was young, but never mind. So it was just one of those things, isn't it? You know, it was like, it just wasn't part of the culture and growing up. So I didn't quite have that experience. But then, you know, as I said, you know, between 83 to 87, indie pop really kind of goes crazy. You know, there's like hundreds of bands. And, you know, the NME brings out cassettes of, you know, the C86 cassette famous and things are going, you know, you had the June Brides and you had, we'd had Orange Juice and then the Triffids and the Chills and, and you know, millions of bands that came out. And then sort of 87, you know, the Smiths break up and a lot of those bands have kind of basically kind of had enough because they've by the third album, as you can imagine, most people have had enough really by then. And five years seem to be the narrative and also kind of around then, you know, ecstasy becomes the thing and the next generation of people want their their kind of, you know, you know, their bands who are just starting, not some band that's been around for three or four years. So you formed around 88, didn't you?
1: We did. Um, We formed around 88 in Dublin. We put out a, our first release was a five-track cassette only release that's become a a kind of a a sought-after we managed to get it. We managed to get it reviewed as an album in Ireland's leading music publication, Hot Press. It was like, almost like a scam we pulled on them. I don't know how they believed because it was this little homemade thing on a, a BASF tape, and um, with just scribbles labelled on it. But they were they reviewed it um, reviewed it favourably as an album. So um, that was Air Force release. And then around 1990, Cherie Records became interested in us. So Cherie were pretty hip label in london at the time and um, i think their biggest band were the telescopes
0: right Telescopes. Really uh, so, so,
1: yeah so the telescopes were their kind of flagship band and they they showed an interest we sent that tape over to them and they 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 released two eps for us on the label so that was a really good time for us as well Cherie were good good Nick Alport who was the, who owned the label was a really good guy. You know, he was really just interested in the music and he brought us over for some shows in London. I think one of our four shows we shared the stage with Slowdive. Right. Um, and I I think it was one of their very first gigs as well, so you we two really nervous bands in the Camden Falcon.
0: Um, Camden Falcon. Taken. That is so hip, isn't it?
1: It was a really hip venue, and when we get over there, we couldn 't believe how cruddy the place <laughs> looked <laughs> like I mean I've been in cruddy venues in Dublin, but we'd heard all about the Camden Falcon this amazing venue, all the best bands play there, and we got it was just this dirty room, but it was a good gig now, but it's just it was it was very it was a bit of a leveler. We thought we were going over from Dublin to this amazing venue but um
0: yes, yeah. and did you pick just, up because there was that other kind of scene that had, come along because it wasn't just everyone getting into sort of the the, the, you know the the bands that we all grew to love like the prime you know primal scream the happy mondays you know the soup dragons who'd made the jump from indie to sort of dance there was there were still all those kind of north london bands like there was you know my bloody valentine and silverfish and like you said the telescope so there was and oh yeah carter the unstoppable sex machine and bizarrely the sundays came along as well they weren't really shoegazy, were they? But um yes. Did you sort of pick up a bit of a another scene for yourself? Because it must be in a band, I know no one admits to being part of a scene, but it's quite nice to somehow feel that there is a bit
1: of a movement. So I suppose we when we signed with Cherie, we kind of got lumped in with those forced the forced EP certainly as a shoegaze band. It was a lot a lot of that kind of white noise. Um, you know. Stuck to the blueprint, the my bloody Valentine blueprint. We, that first EP was very like that. So, I suppose we were seen as a shoe a kind of a shoe guy's band. But live, we were very different. So we weren't a band who stood around staring at our shoes. Certainly Fergal didn't. Fergal was a more from the Iggy Pop school of front, front men. and he he really was a he was a spectacle as part of the band. I think people who came to see us in the early days, if we'd had just been a sho- shoegaze band who stuck completely to the kind of the blueprint, we probably wouldn't have progressed at all. But Fergal added a little bit of danger and a little bit of excitement to what we were doing, I thought, as a frontman. Yes. And I think by the second EP, we were beginning to leave that kind of shoegaze influences behind. And obviously, by by the time we got to our debut record... There's some hints of it on that, but it's it's it had moved on to something a little bit more muscular sounding, I think.
0: So when you sort of, because I know John Peel sort of played the sub-pop 100 and then 200 albums from Seattle. And, the, and there was sort of like that, you know, the Bleach album from Nirvana. And then, you know, there was all the other bands that started and then Nevermind. Did that have much of an influence on you at the time when you started to sort of pick up this kind of other other kind of movement happening?
1: Yeah, I would say some influence. I wouldn't say the whole grunge movement did, but Nirvana definitely had a bit of an impact, and Pixies bands like that definitely had a bit of an impact. You know, Surfer Rosa was an album we all loved. Yeah. Start getting into Sonic Youth were a huge influence early on. Big Black, Swans, um, some some of those American noise bands mixed in with My Bloody Valentine and some of the gay stuff. That I would imagine the Whole
0: Surfers were quite big, weren't they? Yeah.
1: Yeah, they were an influence as well, and Fergal was a fan of theirs particularly. So, um, yeah, it was a bit of that mix, that kind of Anglo-American mix of bands at the time. Uh, You know, Dinosaur Jr. were another band. God, they were good, at the time. Yes. Yeah, they were, yeah. Um, But, um, yeah, they were were kind of the the bands we started to listen. So we we very quickly left behind the shoegaze, you know, that slow dive, the dream, any kind of dreamy element of the sound started to... Yeah, we started to put put a bit dis put a bit of distance between ourselves and that. You
0: weren't going to be Galaxy Five Hundred, were you at all?
1: We weren't a very good band, but we, it wasn't for us. So we could never be in them with Fergal in the band. He was, you know, <laughs> the force of nature.
0: Yes, quite. So when you came, you know, because it was like ninety two, you brought the first album out, which was going to be on Liquid Records. Who are Liquid Records?
1: So Liquid were a small Irish. Um, label they were kind of set up there was a record label called Solid that released a lot more um straightforward mainstream rock music and liquid was set up to I suppose look at more edgy in the alternative stuff. Right. That was that wasn't uh that wasn't our favorite period in the band. That was a frustrating relationship. We got to make the album in 12 days, put it out, got no promotion at all, even in Ireland. Um And, you know, I suppose after Submarine, we went through a period of kind of in in the wilderness where we were a bit lost. We reached a point where we were playing all the same venues in Dublin. um, And we just didn't feel like we were progressing. Like Submarine had got good reviews and done reasonably well, but hadn't sold. Right. We started to kind of question, what's the future for the band? Um, And it was at that point, you know, after a bit of searching and trying to find ourselves as a band, we retreated to this small rehearsal room in Dublin, windowless, tiny, no one around us, just the four of us. And from there we started writing the songs that became heartwarm. And we kind of hit this rich, rich vein of songwriting where that sometimes happens with bands where you just they just pour out one after another. And um that, that was probably, you know, the this period is it. when Yeah, this was the moment where where the band went from certain level, you know, just up. we took it up a notch where the songwriting just got definitely better, I think.
0: And what was the Windmill Studios like in Dublin? Was that um, a better experience?
1: Wimmel Wimmel Lane it was an incredibly expensive studio and um, you wouldn't if we weren't on Columbia Records we would not have been recording in <laughs> Wimmill. It, it was it was I know the producer Warren Livesey, who came from London was horrified at the prices that they charged there he said you'd get you know 10 studios at half the price in the London area alone that would have as you know as, as good equipment and be as well set up as that studio. So it was because you 2 recorded their albums there um, right. that they were able to sell it on that basis.
0: <laughs> so, um, so did you have a bidding war to, to go to Columbia Records at this stage for the second album? So,
1: so yeah, we did. It, I mean, we didn't, we didn't instigate it in any way. In fact, we didn't even shop our demo tape around. The demo tape that got us a deal with Columbia, we just went in and recorded three songs. And we were sitting on this tape, not knowing what to do. The engineer really liked it. And he passed it on to a Sony Columbia A&R man without even telling us. So next, we're getting a call from Sony saying, we really like that tape. Can we get you to go in and record three more? We'll pay for it. We did that. They right. really liked the next three songs. And then they started talking to us. And then EMI got involved because it was a bit of a thing in Dublin, particularly at the time, if there was a buzz about a band. Right. And... Um, everyone was looking to sign the next U2, you know, that's what they were, the record labels were all on the hunt for that. So once there was a sniff that there was, um, you know, a band who might, might have promise, you'll get other record labels interested and EMI became interested and we talked to them as well. We just felt at the time that Columbia were more enthusiastic, were going to get behind the band a lot more, you know, EMI were... Just didn't seem as committed to what we wanted to do, so that's yes. why we went
0: with them. And obviously, at that stage, grunge had even sort of passed, and we were into the world that is Britpop. So was were you again? You know, slightly influenced by watching Top of the Pops. Going, my God, these bands who were, a few years ago would have been just playing at the Norwich Arts Centre for two hundred and fifty people are suddenly on Top of the Pops and in the charts. Did that? Did that sort of influence the sort of the writing and the
1: you know how you're going to? No. Not at all, um, and I think probably to the detriment of the album if, you know, I'm sure Sony Columbia would have been very happy to get a Britpop sounding band who could sell truckloads of records because they fit that sound, but if, I don't think anyone who listens to Heartform could say it fits that mould at all, and it was probably probably one of the reasons why it didn't do as well as it did, it came out probably at the wrong time um, you know, it it stuck out like a sore thumb amongst all that music, menswear, and all those kind of bands. It just wasn't that, you know. Yes. Um, so I mean, Columbia were, the, Columbia had an uh, an MD who was fanatical about the band. Probably again to the detriment, because I think he pissed everybody else in the record company off. He was he was so um, evangelical about us. He thought we were. I don't know. I uh, sometimes I, I was worried. He just really loved the band and and was well behind us. But I, I do feel like that people working the record at the time didn't have the same enthusiasm. They you know they'd have preferred if it was another Blur or another yes. Oasis band. And we just we weren't that.
0: You know? No, not and at all. It was a t-
1: tough tough sell for them in terms of getting radio plays for us. And you know the press was always good. We always got really good press at the time. But radio play was the big one at the time and. They just struggled with that. Did
0: know? John Pill ever pick up on the band at all?
1: I think he did. With some of the early EPs he would have played, um, he certainly would have played the first EPs on Cherie, um, yeah. but uh, not after that, no. I, I, certainly when we were on Columbia, we would have been well
0: outside of John's orbit. You know, I know, I know. Never... That's always, it's always a bit of a tricky one, that, isn't it, really? He's like, yeah. oh, yes, they don't need They don't need little old John anymore, do they? Did you do any major tours for that, that particular release?
1: Yeah, for for um, one, for we did a couple of UK tours. We played some really, really good shows there. Um, we got to support Lou Reed on a European tour at the time as well. Um, so that was like six weeks all over Europe, which was the, it was a, a great experience, you know, just to, to play with one of your idols. My God, Probably was, not, he,
0: was he promoting, was it Magic and Loss? Because he did now New York, didn't he? Then he did Magic and Loss sometime in the early 90s.
1: No, it was the set the Twilight Reeling tour. Right. So it was it was that tour. Um and yeah, it was five weeks. But again, it was probably a bad move. Um I remember we'd gone to the States to New York and met the record company over there, and they were again enthusiastic. They said, We're gonna get you get back over here to play a tour with Stabbing Westward. They were another Sony band who were going out on a 40 day US tour. Right. We said, Great. And it clashed with the Lou Reed tour and both our manager and ourselves said, look, we'd rather do the Lou Reed tour. It's too good an opportunity. The American label went cold on us after that. They just like literally did not want to know. It was a great experience, but it was a, a career suicide for the band in, with the, the American label. And they just weren't. They, they just literally overnight, we, we didn't get out. There was nothing back from them after that because we didn't do that tour.
0: My God, that is such a hard one to. And was was everybody in the band, you know, at least in agreement that let's let's just be with Lou and. Um,
1: yes, we all yeah. we all wanted to do it. It Looked like you know, it was an amazing tour all over Europe and um, playing, someone who'd been such a, a huge influence on us yes. growing up. And, and funnily, years before that, maybe five years before that, uh, Mo Tucker and Sterling Morrison had played in Dublin in the in a small venue. Mo Tucker had an album out. Right. And we supported we supported the two of them. So we got to play with three the original yes. four Velvet Underground. So if only you
0: could but, find uh, John Kell. <laughs>
1: that's we've been searching ever since for John.
0: <laughs> yeah. But
1: um yeah, like it was brilliant, a great experience. Probably not um the best move for the band in terms of trying to endear yourself to the record label in the States. But.
0: No, that is that is one of the
1: mistakes you make.
0: (laughs) I know it's it's a hard call though, isn't it? I mean, not I have never come across too many people who have had that. What I mean, everyone makes a decision that isn't great, but you know, you made you know, you would have taken either of those, wouldn't you? Really, but you know, the fact that they clash at the same time, tricky, yeah, yeah. very tricky. No,
1: it was tricky, and I I suppose one of the big things we did around that time of heartforms, we were on the Jules Holland show as a completely unknown band that really helped raise our profile in in the uk um overnight like it it made a big difference and it just meant every gig we played on that small headline tour people said the first time we we saw you was on jules Jules. so that that was a really good it was that that worked out as a a really good experience for us it was very daunting playing to us i think dusty springfield mcalmond and butler and sinead o'connor were on the same show as us that night so
0: like oh dusty springfield that would be a fantastic. <laughs> one to actually, Sinead, Yeah, I suppose by then she'd had her two major albums in the 80s had hasn't she? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. She was still still fairly um, popular at that time. Now, um, yeah. But, uh, no, it was, that was she did, scary.
0: Yeah, I, I did. Scary go playing
1: it. live live on TV. Playing live on a show like that is <laughs> is pretty daunting. I have to. Is say. it kind
0: of? I mean, is it kind of strange that the fact that the other bands are just going to sit in there looking at you and
1: yes <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it's strange being surrounded you know in this kind of that arrangement where the bands are in a circle and all the audience are behind them, so you do feel a little bit you know like you're in the zoo or under a, under a microscope it's just it's it's unusual but uh, and we were quite young we we were still we were really the rookies on the show, you know every now and again he does throw on the odd unknown band. we were definitely that band that night you know
0: yes you you were yeah, you totally. weren't kind gonna of, kind of, yeah. Compared to um, Sinead and uh, Dusty, you were just, you were just never going to do it, were you? And even Butler and, yeah, the other guy, which we forgot. But then, yeah, so after that experience, your second album, the tricky third album, how did... So did you sort of go back to um, dusting yourself down and thinking, right, we need to try and think of a th- the third... And were you still on Columbia at that stage?
1: So we had... So- so one of the, the reasons we signed for Columbia was they gave us a two-album firm deal, which which was unheard of for a lot of bands back then. Most most times, major labels would give you one album with an option of another five albums, but that option was always theirs, so yes. they could drop you at any stage. They actually gave us a two-album firm deal. That's how much the MD believed in the band at the time. But to be honest, what, after Heartworm, and, you know, it hadn't sold, um. And when you sign to a major, the one thing you have to do when you is go in with your eyes open and realise if the record doesn't sell, they're not gonna want you to want you on that label. And we very real quickly realized I think the MD moved on. Right. And the new people the, the classic where they change all the personnel. The new people did not inherit this band who they saw as a band a debt more than a band. Um, <laughs> and we they agreed to pay us off. Um you know, and we, we, we went away and we decided to fund the album ourselves, the third album, and put it out. Right. But by that stage, there was cracks appearing in the band. We were starting to really, you know, it. we'd been a long time together and it, it was beginning to feel like we were winding down. So that tour album is really the sound of a band who are falling apart, I think.
0: Yes, well, uh, quite a few people have said, you know, when they were doing... what was going to be the final album they knew it was going to you know there was just no energy left it was like okay
1: yeah
0: you know let's just try I mean obviously when you're that age and you're going through that you're not that mature but it's that moment where you just kind of get it get it done really and then think right that's it you know did was that the kind of atmosphere with with the recording
1: session absolutely it was worse than that (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah it was like a bit of revolving doors where we 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 weren't even seeing each other in the studio. We were just going in and doing our bits. And as soon as the last day, we wrapped the last day of recording, we knew that was it. So the album came out when the bands had split up. We didn't do any shows to promote it. Um, Right. It was literally released just as a kind of a, that's it, we're done. And, you know, it it sank without trace. I mean, it's, I think we did it thousand or a couple of thousand copies of it and you know when they were gone we just never pressed any more up and that was it was it was over for us
0: yes did it feel quite a strange moment because you had been together nearly 10 years at that stage and obviously had your pre-band moment as well did it did it feel kind of a combination of feeling like a
1: relief as well as a certain sadness exactly like that it was it was a relief to the atmosphere had become toxic within the band you know And and this this is what happens when you're in any relationship where there's that closeness for that length of time where you're literally living and relying. We were like, you know, if you think it was, it's almost like you're chained to the other person. And if one person leaves that that arrangement, you know, you're lost and... That's right. It was a mixture of sadness, but also relief to be able to have got there. And I, I really fell out of love with the guitar for a long time after that. I was so sick of everything to do with the band, all of the, I suppose, the infighting, all the problems we had with the record label. I just wanted to get away from music.
0: When we yes. Well, I, I never, I, I, yeah,
1: I never wanted to play, jump straight into another band or to play music with someone else or do cover versions or be in a wedding band none of that <laughs> I <laughs> just wanted to K-D get band. away yes yeah, I,
0: band. I, I took an interview with a guy from the senseless thing and and I think after a few other bands he, he eventually became a, a Morris dancer for a while as well so really? I thought, oh, didn't see that interesting. One coming. yes I know <laughs> but he said it kind of caught his kind of enthusiasm because I think a lot of people have that experience where they just you know, it's just, just, it's just drained them spiritually. It's just, there's just nothing there, you know, and other people who've had that moment where they've been a band, the guy from Mega City 4, where I think it was coming to the end and it was that kind of, I think they would have kept going, but the crowd was kind of dwindling. The record sales were dwindling. They still had no money. He was still sort of having to live with his brother. And then there was the sort of, Oh my God, we've got this tax bill that someone hasn't sorted out. And um they so you know, they sold all their instruments just to, you know, pay off. And he just said he spent a year wandering around, wouldn't you know, it's like literally in a bit of a depressed state until he thought, right, I better get my hair cut and do something else now. But it did take a very long time, you know, it sounded like. It. And a lot of people have had that experience of just thinking, God, I hadn't thought of the end, but now it's here. It's it's a bit scary as well.
1: It was it was very difficult. Um, I just, you know, we'd been very close as a band. We weren't, we didn't all grow up as friends together, but you know that that closeness when you're doing something together that you love and that you you know when you're doing something creative, and um, it's hard to describe it. And it's down it's down to the fact that you rely so much on the others in the band. So. When when that fractures and when that breaks, um, you don't you know you haven't just lost the music. Very quickly you lose all that circle of friends that were around the band as well. So all the people who worked with the band, who you hung out with, you know, purely because you were in playing music, they all disappear, and you're left you're left pretty much back in kind of almost like in civilian life, cut adrift from all of that. So it's 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 difficult to adjust to, and I can see how people really struggle with it mentally
0: yes well I, I suppose you know i did remember going to see that guy he was the lead singer of my life story and he said you know it's difficult when people come up and go weren't you big ones in the 90s and he was like well i haven't shrunk but you know thanks for <laughs> 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 was like, thanks for making me feel good today you know yes i was a <laughs> someone, now i'm a no one thank you very much you know it's, <laughs> it's kind of you know because everyone i suppose we always think that when people are in a band they're just kind of like God, you've got all this money and then you'll keep getting all this money every year and and you you realize actually it doesn't actually work like that at all does it it's like you get a bit of money and then you get it all taken away and then you might break it even if you're very lucky but you still don't own your music at the end of it it's like apart from that it's what could go wrong
1: (laughs) yeah it's like I, I see people you know obviously complaining about Spotify and how little the artists get but I, I don't think it's ever been any different. I think the music industry has always been set up and structured so that the top 5% make everything, and all the other bands struggle and eke out a living. And if they're lucky, they can continue making music as a living. And if they're unlucky, they end up splitting up because that's not an option. But it's it's the top 2 to 5% that really... Are the the ones who make all the money, and it's been—it's set up like that, and it's always been set up like that. Spotify is just another way of doing it, but it's—it's—it's similar. You know, it's no different.
0: I suppose yes. And now we don't—we don't have to feel guilty when you used to get a sort of vinyl record. That home taping is killing music as you put it on your TDK ninety cassette. Thinking, well, you know you know <laughs> I don't know you'd have all these albums you sort of I don't know I didn't well I did actually but you just go and record to albums and if you, of course you did. And if you really liked it, you might buy the vinyl record but at the same yeah. time you know it was still I don't know it's a bit it was a little bit like Spotify because you think well I wouldn't buy if I had to but I would be happy to have a recording of the tapes so at least I'm listening to the band now that's not a great argument at all <laughs> but, mm. but you know Spotify does mean that you're the name of the band and the band will live on forever and that you know, is it's on one level, you know, you could think, well, that's a better thing. But I did an interview actually with you talked about um, sting earlier, but I did an interview with Miles Copeland um, a couple of weeks ago. And and I think if you have the manager like Miles or I don't know who, is it Paul McGuinness from U2? U2, yeah. 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 I think these guys, you know, have got some and the and the guy from and the and the management from REM, you know, you, you might you might have a chance, don't you? But if you haven't got those guys there. You know, there's a l-
1: there's a lot of elements you know in terms of how whether a band becomes a success. You can have a great album, but there's other things around look and timing that if they don't work for you, you know, it just won't happen. And I, yes. I often cite cite a band like the Cranberries as a band who were really lucky, and they got all those things aligned, like the the look, the timing, because I remember seeing them playing in Dublin and they were a good band but they had this tape going being passed around the a A&R, and uh, community and I had that song Linger on it and everybody loved that song right. that was that was the whole reason they were chasing that band but I I I think there's been no disrespect to the Cranberries I think they turned out to be a, you know a very good rock band there's been loads of good bands like the Cranberries that just didn't have the look and timing that they yes. had Um Well, I I remember
0: doing it with Richard Strange and the Doctors and Madness, and he said they were just two years too early for punk, but everybody in the audience watching them, you know, were the bands that formed, you know, the punk movement, but they were just a bit too too there, and by the time that punk kind of got going, they were a bit like, A, we're 25 and we feel a bit old, and B, you know, we're kind of getting a bit bored ourselves now, but all these young kids are sort of happy to take the baton and do it. So, yeah, you know, timing is everything, because obviously... Yeah, yeah. Every every artist will, you know, has said the same thing. You know, there is so much luck. You know, and and you don't yeah. quite realise. You know, when you're that age, you just haven't got the concept, and unless you have some really hustly manager. But even so, that manager that turns out to be good. Could easily turn out to be absolutely rubbish because they weren't, they didn't have a great CV, you know, they just had a like,
1: Yeah, yeah, they just
0: had a bit of a nose for business and they had some little edge as well. But like you said, you know, there was a few stars and planets lined up that sort of ran, you know, like, yes and a couple of good singles on the album and a few good moments, you know. I mean, there's, there's always those stories like bands who played, you know, Glastonbury you know, on the Pyramid stage, who only got it because somebody pulled out at the last minute and suddenly another band turns up or, you know, somebody says, oh my God, you know, do you want to play Top of the Pops tonight? Because, you know, the main band's pulled out, but, you know, and it's like, God, of course, yes, we'll just drop everything, and go and do Top of the Pops, and that's the moment that... They get yeah. sort of the, the, the sort of the step in the right direction, but they and they take it. But you know, if, without without that, they could still be going. Oh, actually, I'm not going to bother them anymore. You know.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's that's very true. And um, as we said, that that lucky break can be the difference between you ended up um, ending up on Skid Row or being, you know, the next big thing in terms of you know. I, as I said, everyone was always looking for the next U two from Ireland. And it never really happened. There was lots of nearly men all the way along, right up to... I think the Cranberries were the biggest, were the only band that, after U2 that really went kind of yeah. worldwide. They were a massive band. Um, yes, but, uh, I mean,
0: extraordinary, really. They they were so polished, weren't they? The Cores. Yeah. where were they called? Well, I should... the
1: Co- oh, yeah, they were, pretty, they were pretty popular as well. The cores, yeah, they're from Dundalk in Ireland. Uh, yeah very they had their had their 15 minutes where they were really popular as well
0: they were like they were there alongside people like shania twain weren't they they just had this polished look to them and the crossover market was just extraordinary for all of them really
1: but they they were they were a record company's dream that band you know they had really good musicians they had you know they had the good singer with a really good voice and all those very nice amorish kind of um, melodies and yeah, they were just a record company's dream, yeah,
0: amazingly catchy. actually, one of the, my favorite bands i 'm not sure they 're from Dublin called Dervish. You were around in the nineties. Yeah,
1: I don't think, they were, don't think they're from Dublin. I think they might be from the west of right. Ireland. Right,
0: but they were very folk. You know, they were. Yeah, yeah. I've seen yeah. them a few times, and and Cara Dillon as well. She was again very folk. She wasn't pop and folk. Mm. She was just folk. But um, but then you reformed, don't you? After about seven years, did you in that time did you sort of just put the guitar in the cupboard and say, I just need to yeah. do something else in my life?
1: I did. Um. <laughs> That's exactly what I did. And I think it was, um, was it seven years or was it nearer 10 years? I'm trying to think back because I told you my memory was pretty bad. But it, was, it felt like a long time and I did literally go off and do something else and had always said there was no way I'd get involved again. But over time, you know, one of the things that I did feel bad about was how the band ended and how there was this thing where we went from being really good friends and that was that was kind of fractured and broken so one of the, the big reasons I wanted to do it and it was just a it was a, just a tour an Irish tour was sit down with the guys and have a, a beer again and just put the the kind of um, the bad blood behind us and Yes, it was successful in doing that in terms of, at the time it was you know it was a nice time I never felt personally and i haven't really talked to the rest of the guys about that the gigs you know they were good but i just felt like airtime had passed and going back out on the road as a band doing you know all the songs that you did before with no new material or no real no really no real that vitality you had for me it was just i won't say going through the motions because it wasn't that but it it felt like when we were finished like airtime has passed there's other bands out there now coming up so yes. It turned out that you know we did the tour. It was a great talk on the final night about getting together and doing something else, but nothing materialized. And
0: yeah, did that last? Because I think it was about two thousand and five. Did that period of of sort of doing some more dates? Did that just last a year or so?
1: Yes, just a year. Yeah. Now was... two of the guys continued and went out as Whipping Boy. and um, Fergal and Colin went out as Whipping Whipping Boy with some different musicians, but we weren't involved in that. So, um. You know, it ended for us after that one tour and we haven't played together again since.
0: Yes. So does that mean that you've been sort of going through your archive and sort of doing all that business that people love doing when they're when they sort of, yeah, this time has happened and, and they think, oh, actually, it'd be nice to just put everything straight?
1: Yeah, I suppose in terms of the reissue, we're, we're reissuing One that came about... Um, when um, Pete Paffida is I don't know if you know. Pete, oh he's yes, a, he's yeah. loves that, doesn't he? Yeah, he's his label, Needle Mythology. They approached us about reissuing Heartworm, and you know, that's that's who we went with. We we didn't push it. We weren't, you know, we'd know there's no impetus from the band at any stage in the last 5 or 10 years to do anything like you know look at reissuing the records but when he approached as we said why not um, and they're putting together a, a very nice package in terms of you know the the album some lo- lots of nice b-sides and live versions and it, it just it, they they take a lot of care over the reissues i don't know if you've seen any of them but he's done he's done a few now um I think he's done one with the lilac time.
0: Oh yes, um, he's very keen on lilac times, yeah, isn't he? Yeah. And um so
1: they he puts they put together some, a really nice package. So that it wasn't us, it came from um we were approached by Needle Mythology and that, that's due to come out soon. That's all um I know. <laughs> it's excellent. been put back a few times because of uh yes. s- some delays in terms of getting the the album pressed because of COVID. So um or waiting for everything's ready though, it's all ready to ready to go. But well, there
0: won't it's be there's, there's been there won't a, be any show. There's a few labels. There's a new one in Preston called Optic Nerve. You sort of putting out these reissues and and really obscure things, mostly from flexi discs and you know, cassettes that they've found to sort of just about get an album's worth of material. And there's another one in I think New York called Clydebury and someone in Germany called Fire station, and obviously there's cherry red records, so it's great that you, you know, I do think archiving. Bizarrely, it's like timekeeping. As you get older, you just loved, you just love to Mm -hmm. archive things properly, don't you? And uh, and have it all there. So that's quite good. So does that mean, you know, does emotionally and dynamically, is that okay that the band is still going but without you in it? Did you feel kind of comfortable with that?
1: They're not going at the moment. Uh, At the time, if I'm being honest, it was it wasn't easy. To, to watch and it wasn't you know to to know the band were going out because I always felt it was the four of us you know those we were the original band, and I know lots of bands do it and it's you know it's but it's something i would personally i would never have went out as whipping boy if the other three weren't involved like yes. it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been a consideration but look I understand the reasons why the guys did it and um, you know yeah i've it's just something I wouldn't have done. So it was hard to tell it was a bit disappointing at the time, but I'm over it now. Like I've you know, yeah. I've spoken to I've spoken to the guys since we don't see each other often or talk to each other often, but I have spoken to them and there's no there's no animosity at all now. You know. Yeah. We just we just want the reissue to come out and it just so that people who never got the record on vinyl particularly and vinyl so the in thing at the moment. Um there's a real appetite to, to get that on vinyl because lots of people missed out on it at the time. CD was the big format when, when the record came out. Yes. So, um,
0: the, 90, so yeah. the, nin- the 90s was the time of champagne, cocaine and, and CDs, wasn't it? I mean, I think record It was indeed. <laughs> but it's interesting because I know when I did... Um, I didn't do an interview with this guy, but Stuart Copeland, the brother of Miles, I remember when, <laughs> I remember when the police reformed, he said that um, obviously they were going to make a million doing this, several million. And he said everyone was having a good time, apart from him and Sting, who were just not happy because their relationship had broken down. But they had to have banned therapy because um, it wasn't going to continue and there was millions at stake for this in money. And, um, and they said it was kind of quite good. It, you know, they did sort of clear the air. But did you ever sort of feel that it would have been... Would band therapy have helped, you know, the, the sort of... the combine? I-
1: I don't think so and, and to be honest um you know I love the the three guys that I played music with I you know I've no problem saying that you know they were a part of the the best period of my life and I've a lot to be grateful to the three of them and no, nothing that they do would do afterwards will change that that's yes. you know they were a big part of my life and we shared something wonderful together something really special for all those years so I I look back on that now rather than you know when i was a bit younger probably more reactive to the situation life's too short to be bitter about things like that now you know it's it happens it's it's not a, it's not a big deal but what is a big deal is we we got together four guys you know with from nothing we, we 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 did something together we've created an album that's stood the test of time that people still want to listen to are still talking about not hundreds of thousands of people not you know it's not something that's going to make a massive impression when it's released but I know a lot of the people who love that album really love that album and yes I'm I'm proud of my involvement in it and and I you know I'm really grateful that I met three guys like that to make that music so no animosity, no need for therapy at this stage.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Even back then, I know. It, it, would have, it was quite an interesting concept, though. But then, you know, if you could have said something to your 16 or 18-year-old self starting out and with the experience you've had and, and the wisdom that you would have picked up, is there anything you would have just kind of, just would have loved to have whispered in their ear? Either things that you said, yes, definitely do that. By the way, I wouldn't have done that. You know, or, or, you know, just what, what you, were your key kind of moments Thoughts about that experience?
1: Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I, sp- I suppose a lot of people would probably expect me to say, "Don't sign with a major record label," but I wouldn't actually say that. Um, I think we'd gone through the indie experience with both Cherie and with Liquid Records, and you know, it was we were at a point where we didn't have some way of continuing as a band and making a living and. St- you know playing together we would have probably folded so i don't regret going with the major label at all i i regret some of the decisions you know if i was saying a 16 year old that say play more gigs play more shows do as many shows as you can we were a little bit when we were with columbia we were a little bit you know picking and choosing what we should and shouldn't do and you know saying, do we really want to go out there for six weeks? Let's just do a three-week tour. And I think we needed to probably gig more and get ourselves in front of an audience. And yeah, I'd say we should have probably done that. That's That would be the big one. Um, yes. But I've no, I've no regrets about going with a major label at the time that we did. I definitely think it's, it's a dangerous thing to do if you're a band starting out, to go straight into a major label. I think you do need time to develop and yeah. Have a shot at it at least, but um, no. Um, they let us. The one thing I'll say about Columbia is they let us make the album we wanted. There was no interference in their studio, and no trying to tone the sound down. No trying to, you know, bury, you know, push the vocals to obscene levels where everything sounds like so radio friendly and polished. Yeah. We wanted it to sound raw and a bit edgy, and they let us. You know, they didn't try and interfere with that. So um, but
0: and did, you, yeah. and did you did you have a producer at that time uh, who was kind of sympathetic to the band who who sort of got the sound you wanted
1: Absolutely and it probably wouldn't have been our first choice um Warren Livesey, he was he was suggested by the record company we'd we'd suggested um or we talked about Gil Norton who had done some of the oh, Pixies he, records
0: Oh yes, Gil Norton Um
1: we we even talked about uh, uh, Steve Albini from Big Black who was obviously done Nirvana did Nirvanas yes. in utro um, and he did sea monsters by the wedding present which was an album we absolutely loved We just loved how extreme that album sounded, but they suggested Warren Livesey he who he'd done some um albums with he did the House of love they're there Midnight Oil. um I think it was the 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 records he did with the there that really the record company thought. would be right for us even though we're completely different bands yeah and he came over to meet us and he 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 said all the right things he wanted to keep that edge he wants to make the, the the kind of the quiet parts as beautiful as possible and the loud parts as as extreme and as edgy as 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 we could get them and by and large i think we we managed to do that with the record Um, i i don't think it's dated the sound of it which is unusual because a lot of records from that period do sound like you could pick pick out nearly the year they were recorded. Yes. So um, yeah.
0: yeah, I think I he de- did a I def- really good job. I definitely think that at the eighties, the the, the the chart music at the time, you know, those sort of that production, that Trevor Horn production sound of the eighties is quite hard yeah. going, isn't it? Really? And yeah, even but- the
1: rock, the rock production that Steve Lillywhite sounds that Simple Minds and you two had you can you can you can hear a record that he's produced and know that's who did it. You know, it has that drum sound the same. So, uh, yeah, um, Warren did a great job. Um, we were very happy with how, how it went him. And, you know. we Brilliant. did a good relationship. That's yeah. good. That's fantastic. Well, look,
0: this has been fantastic. Thank you ever so much. And if you want, um, I can always, um, yeah, send you the link and you can always put it on your Facebook page. You have got a Facebook page, uh-huh. haven't you?
1: we do and we have a twitter account so yes yeah, send me the link david and we'll, we'll post it when it's ready and yeah yeah well
0: thank you for your time this has been amazing and it's brilliant to hear the the story of the band and and um yeah looking forward to good old Pete fetus he's who's on a bit of a high at the moment because his book's doing quite well isn't it broken it Greek. is yeah 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: No, he's, he seems like a he's he's a, a big music fan and anyone who who puts out record who's a music fan and puts out records you know they're going to try and do right by the record so i think he will and i think it's you know we we're happy with we, we went with needle mythology yes. for this well it's, it's it must
0: be a nice little thing to do i mean even though you have to be a bit careful not to blow like, too much i suppose as, as i know john peel tried to do a record label wasn't it dandelion in the 70s which i think was a bit tricky
1: yeah, yeah, He did I some didn't, very funny. Oh,
0: Micro Disney. That was the other band from Oh there.
1: yes, yeah. Great <laughs> band from Cork. They're from uh Cork, a really good band. And um I think singer has a uh Cockle Coughlin, Coughlin has a new record out now, I think.
0: Yeah, he's definitely got a new and uh, yes and is it Sean who's the uh, he's got a solo. High Lamas.
1: He he did a some, some couple of good records with the high llamas, I think.
0: Yeah, I now. mean they're they're still very productive. I know, sort of um Still putting it out there, but yeah. Anyway, look, thank you ever so much for this. It's been fantastic.
1: Thank you, David. A pleasure. Okay, and see care. you soon. Yeah, definitely take care.
0: keep in touch. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There you go. That is how you say goodbye in a very concise way. I know I could edit, edit that bit out, but I quite enjoy it because it all sounds very fumbly. And I'm very, um, I'm just very English and uptight. Anyway, look, that was me in conversation with Paul Page from The Whipping Boy, or just Whipping Boy. Um, and as, as you probably gather they have got some reissues coming out very soon so anyway there you go brilliant right if you want to contact me make it nice though if you are if you want to you can find me on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show and also all these have been archived and you can find those on spotify itunes and podbean true anyway have a great week stay safe